we are going to do a little bit something different this morning than what's on your outline. Uh, once in a while that happens to me, as I've told you before, where I uh, come up with an outline on my study break of where we're going to go in the sermon, and then as I get into it uh, through my study throughout the week, I go, uh, same main point, but we're taking a little bit of a different uh, track on it. And I really think it's God's leading when that happens. And so for those of you note takers, you can pull out your notes and there's a lot of white space on there, but you're not going to fill in any of those blanks. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Bummer. Uh, but anyways, uh, let me make a couple comments before I uh, pray. First, what do I have in my pocket here? Ah, that's right. It's my brand new, because I'm new in Arizona, Arizona voter identification card. Hint, hope you guys have one too, right? I'm telling you, I mean, there's a lot going on in this election right now, and people are obviously all concerned on multiple levels. And, you know, my concern as your pastor is simply that you vote, and that when you vote, because it's your God-given right, quite frankly, in the democracy that we have, according to our Constitution, that when you vote, that uh, you take your knowledge of this book into the voting booth with you. Amen? I mean, that would be my only... Yeah, you can clap at that. That would be my only concern for you. And so, you know, there's a lot of issues. There's marriage issues and other things on the ballot, especially for us here in Arizona. And if you have a knowledge of God's Word, I have full confidence that you're going to vote uh, His righteousness and His goodness, and then we'll see where He leads in our country, all right? But all of us, let's just be praying for how the Lord does lead in that. And so uh, with that said, why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray for this Tuesday as well as for our time together now. Fathers, you know, when I've been thinking about what's going to happen in our nation this Tuesday, uh, the words that keep coming back to me are the words of Jesus Christ when he said and taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we know as followers of Jesus that you are sovereign and providential over this world and that not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of your knowledge that every one of our hairs and our head are numbered. That's an amazing thought. And so, Father, we pray that uh, your will indeed would be done uh, for our country uh, this Tuesday. I pray for these folks here, Father, for our church, Scottsdale Bible, that as we uh, utilize the right that we've been given in this country to cast our vote, to have our say, that, uh, Lord, you would give real wisdom and more than anything, just a clear sense of biblical will when it comes to the issues that we'll be voting on uh, to us as a church, to each of us individually. Father, as we turn to your word now, I pray that um, indeed you might be honored uh, we revere your word as holy as your will come to us in propositional form. So may we understand it rightly now and apply it aggressively to our lives, we pray in Jesus' holy name. And we all say together, amen. All right. Well, hey, in the old days when they used to read God's word, they had such respect for it, they used to do what? Do you remember? They used to stand. So why don't you all stand right now? And uh, I'm going to read for you out of 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 17. So if you brought a Bible, you can track along with me. If you didn't, as usual, we're going to have the Scripture up here on the screen. So listen to what God says. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Forever loves, desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts 
Regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. And as they've said for years, may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Why don't you have a seat? Well, I don't know if you caught it or not, but when I was on my study break studying this passage, I thought, well, duh. I mean, there's like an often repeated theme in this passage, like six times in nine verses, this idea of being, us being and doing good. Six times in nine verses, it says, good days, do good, zealous for what is good, good conscience, good behavior, doing good. So like, I think Peter's trying to make a point here, don't you? And he's switching gears from what he's talked about in the first seven verses of chapter 3, this whole idea of marriage, uh, husbands and wives that we've explored for the last two Sundays. And now he's like switching into high gear and saying to us, hey, you guys need to be good uh, even when things get tough in your culture. And I got to tell you, when I'm wrestling with how I present stuff in in message or sermon form with you, I I, I am concerned, is it the kind of stuff that can keep our attention, that we can sink our teeth into and all that? And, And earlier this week, I have to confess, I said to the Lord, I said, God, this passage just seems so vanilla. I mean, like, good like, everybody wants to do good. We live in a country that talks about good. And, you know, how do you, how do you preach about good today? And I got to tell you, I was humbled in my study this week. And it's one of the reasons I'm taking a little bit of a different tack. Because as I got more into this passage, it hit me in such significant ways. Now, don't miss this. that There is a significant uh, way that God defines good here and in all the Bible that varies significantly from the way that our culture sees and defines good. In other words, if we approach this text by just taking into it what our culture says about good and how good it is, I'll explain that in a minute, then yeah, it's going to seem vanilla. But if we try to plumb the depths of what God means by good here, we might just be incredibly challenged and even encouraged in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so so look up here on the screen. I want to show you how our our culture today defines good. I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, and here's what it says. Webster's Miriam's Online Dictionary. It says, conforming to some favorable character or agreed-upon tendency. That's good. In other words, doing good is simply finding that which is right, that which benefits another, this favorable character or tendency, and doing it. This is how our culture sees and has shaped this word. We define for us what is favorable, and then we all agree upon it, and we do it, and voila, that is good. And that's the way most of us think about it, that it's kind of a culturally entrenched, beneficial thing, i.e. good. And when you think about it, we've made good then kind of a status quo term, haven't we? I mean, it's like everybody should be good. I mean, that's what it is. It's like, you know, you do good, and then if you're really good, you're better, and if you're like the best at being good, you're best, right? I mean, that's the way good works in our culture today. And though this isn't a bad thing at all, what we're going to see here in just a moment is that the way that Peter and the rest of the Bible uses this term good is subtly but powerfully different. In other words, it is true that good in the Bible targets like a favorable character or tendency, and and it's about doing right and that which is beneficial. But as we're going to see, the Bible adds an additional and even heightened element to this idea of good that only occurs when God is speaking to his people. 
And to show you what I mean here, I want to quote to you from probably one of the foremost authorities or resources around today on the meaning of biblical words. This big thing is called the Bauer Arndt Gingrich Danker Greek Lexicon, or BAGDA for short. And now you know why my teenagers call me a dork, all right? Because I enjoy books like this, and I read books like this, and I get excited about books like this, and they say, Dad, you are such a dork. And, and though you got to know Greek to understand and make sense of this big thing, here's what this book is about. Now, this is going to scratch where you itch. What, what guys have done over the last 200 years is that they have taken every major or primary Greek word in the original New Testament, and they've looked at each one in its context, compared it to the secular Greek of the Bible's day, and then given us a workable definition for every Greek word or major Greek word in the New Testament. So this is kind of like a Webster's Dictionary for Greek dorks like me that try to share it with the rest of you. And so as we're trying to understand Peter's definition of good, repeated six times here, it's the Greek word agathos, listen to how Bagda defines it. You're going to love this. It says that agathos is to meet a relatively high standard of quality, worth, merit, or conduct. Can I repeat that? To meet a relatively high standard of quality, worth, merit, or conduct. And I don't know about you folks, but when I read that, I thought, wow, is that like different from the way our world defines good or what? I mean, look at those two definitions up there on the screen. I mean, the definition, as we've already seen, of our, of our world is that good is conforming to either some intrinsic or culturally agreed upon favorable character or tendency. That's what good is, that, that you conform. You either define it yourself or find out what others think, whatever this favorable tendency is. It's culturally entrenched. And then you do your best to live it. And before you know it, you're going to be good, according to our culture, like the rest of the people around you. And certainly this is not a bad thing per se. But notice that God's word, however, raises the bar just a bit when it calls you and me not just to conform to some favorable tendency, but to meet a relatively high standard. A standard that rises above the melee of this world. A standard that is outlined in God's Word, the Bible. A standard that He has given to us already that defines what the good is. In other words, we don't just say what is good based on what you think is good or what I think is good or, heaven forbid, what our culture thinks is good. No, God has already told us in His Word what is good and it's yours and my job now to meet this relatively high standard. We'll see how in a little bit here as we trust and walk with God through Christ. And so more than anything else, what I need you to see here, and this is quite frankly what has kind of gotten me excited about this, is that God raises the ante significantly on the kind of good that he desires and expects from those who know and follow his son Jesus. As one who follows Jesus and are filled with the life-giving Holy Spirit, when we're called to do good, it's at a whole different level than the world around us. And if you understand this at all, if you're tracking with this at all, then the only question becomes, well, what is this relatively high standard of quality, worth, merit, or conduct that God calls us to? And this is exactly what Peter is answering in our text before us. Now look at verse 8. Again, look at how he starts this text and look at how he starts to describe this good that we're to be about. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so don't miss what he's getting at there. 
He's saying God's kind of good means thinking a certain way, feeling a certain way, and then acting a certain way. All three of our major faculties are included just here in verse 8 in Peter's description of what good is. And so, for instance, we think, he says, with humility and unity of mind. Or as Paul would say in Philippians 2, counting others more important than ourselves, doing all we can to keep unity and the bond of peace. And so you and I, in doing good the way God calls us to, think in such a way as to not make mountains out of molehills, to not major in the minors, that we do all we can to agree with one another, and when we have to, to agree to disagree, but by all means protect the precious unity that Jesus prayed about in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Amen? Let's take another run at that. But to keep the precious unity that Jesus prayed about in John chapter 17. Amen? I mean, that's what he calls us to. He calls us to have the kind of unity that doesn't just mirror the world around us, but, but to agree, to keep things, the big picture things, the big picture things, and on the little things, to let them go. So that we might be these good, godly, called people that have, as we're going to see in a minute here, a witness with those around us. And all I can tell you is that as a pastor, I love seeing this unity of mind and this humility of mind when I see it in the church and among God's people. I have some friends here that introduced themselves to me before the service that are visiting from my home church. She came right after I uh, had left there. And, uh, and, and I'm keeping track of my home church because it's the church that discipled me and that I served for the last six years before I came here. And uh, they're having a rough time finding a new senior pastor. I just got to tell you, we should pray for them. In fact, when I told you all last year that this was my one-year mark last week, um, do we all understand that it's the one-year mark for them of not having a senior pastor? And as all of you know, because you had two years of that, it can be a really long, drawn-out, difficult, and frustrating process, right? And, and they're kind of in the thick of that. And they actually found somebody this past summer, but it didn't work out, and so that was a letdown and, and all that. And, and yet, i got to tell you, given all of that, I was talking to the office manager this week back at my church in Cleveland, and I said, how's attendance going? You know, pastors are always asking about attendance, right? We're always concerned. How's attendance? How's attendance? And I said, tell me about attendance. The number she gave me is, is almost the same number as when I left. Is that not cool? I mean, one year into this, frustrated, everybody whining a little bit, because I talked to the elders too about, you know, them not finding a pastor yet, and everybody is still there. That's unity. That's humility. That's saying we're in it together. We're sticking through this. Whether we like what's going on or not, whether it meets our goals or not, that doesn't matter. Unless somebody denies the resurrection or says the word of God is all wet, we're staying in this together. Amen? Unity of mind. Humility of mind. That's what Peter's getting at here. That's the kind of good that you and I do. And then notice that he says that doing good involves feeling things like sympathy and a tender heart. Wow. That word sympathy here is the same word that Jesus uses in Hebrews 4. Many of you know the passage when it says that when we come to him in prayer, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Remember that passage? So, so that when he looks at us and we come to him in prayer and he goes, whoa, did you sin a lot this week? Boy, are you still fallen? The Bible says that because of his blood, because of Jesus' death on a cross for our sins, that he sympathizes now with our weaknesses. And that's the same word now that we're commanded to feel for those around us so that when they let us down 
when they hurt us, we're supposed to sympathize and say, whoa, are they ever fallen? But you know what? I'm fallen too, and I have sympathy on that. As followers of God who do good, we're to feel this way toward those around us. And so it's like Jesus and the Good Samaritan. It's Jesus with the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. It's Peter. Remember this in Acts 4 with the beggar outside the temple when he says, I don't have any gold and silver, but I'm going to give you the greatest gift I can, the gift of eternal life through Christ. You get the picture. God's idea of good doesn't just begin with thinking. It penetrates into our feelings. And then as if all of this were not enough, God's standard of good finally shows itself in our actions. It says there in verse 8 that we need to have brotherly love for each other. You know, the kind of love that you reserve only for family members. Sacrificial, going the extra mile, always hanging in there kind of love. And then in verses 10 through 12 of our passage, while quoting Psalm 34, Peter adds some other things. He says, watch your mouths, don't allow hatred to turn to, to dictate your life, be the kind of people that always seek peace. In short, he says, be righteous, like words that are always used in the scriptures for the actions of God's people. That's why we called this series what we did. So add all this up, folks. We're to think the good, feel the good, and even act the good, all in a heightened way that outpaces anything that our world, our fallen world, could show. We're to be good morally in our behavior and actions, relationally in how we feel and treat others, and intellectually how we think about the world around us. And it's the kind of good that's to stand out. As Jesus said, salt and light. That's who you and I are called to be. That's the good that God calls us to. Are you starting to see how it's different from the world around us now? And when you get to this point, especially if you're a pastor, if you have a pastor's heart, here's the question you ask yourself. And that is, are God's people in the 21st century, are evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing Christians in America today living this heightened level of good that God calls us to? Are we? And I don't mean to be judgmental because Lord knows I have my own struggles. And I don't mean to be legalistic because you guys know I'm a pretty grace-filled guy. But every cultural indicator we look at shows that on some significant level, now don't miss this, that we're not quite living the good as Christians in America that Peter outlines here in his text. That every culture indicator shows that we're struggling deeply in being at all distinguishable when it comes to this good from the world around us. Some are saying, what are you talking about, Jamie? Well, let me share with you some of the evidence. Uh, as all of us know, about 90% of believers in our culture today, 90% either live together or sleep together before getting married, right? It's just like totally commonplace. And yet our best estimates, according to the data, are that about 80% of Christian couples do the same. And that only one in five couples that come to a pastor to get married have, have kept themselves pure until their wedding day. And Hebrews 13 tells us this. It says to keep the marriage bed pure. And so as a result of this not-so-good modeling from either adults or older brothers and sisters, Josh McDowell cites that only about 10% of evangelical teenagers fare better with, secular, or with sexual temptation than the secular youth around them. Think about that. Go to our youth group today, count one in ten. Only one in ten youth is faring better than the secular youth around them when it comes to secular or sexual temptation. Why? Because we're about the same as adults. 
This is going to blow you away. Three years ago, Ron Sider came out with a book entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And drawing on well-researched and well-respected polls by such guys as Gallup, George Gallup, and George Barna, he noted some of the following things. Now, this is going to be sobering, but just hang in there, guys. We need to wrestle with this. He first noted that evangelical, born-again Christians are actually slightly more likely, according to the statistical data, to get divorced than the general public. Let that sink in a moment. Evangelical Christians are slightly more likely to get divorced than the general public. And I know how some of you think. You think like me. You think, well, well, that must mean that they got divorced before they became a Christian, right? No. In fact, in further studies, they show that 90% of those who got divorced got divorced after they became Christians. So in our relational lives, we're certainly not showing or demonstrating the good. You know, it, it, it's sad. He said even further that in a well-documented Gallup study, this one really blew me away, that white evangelical Christians were more likely than Catholics and non-evangelicals to object to a black neighbor who moves in next door. We're still racist. As if this were not enough, moving on to another topic, he noted that the average evangelical Christian gives away about 4% of his or her income, which is slightly higher than the general population. Only 6% of evangelical Christians polled gave away a tithe, 10%. Only one, slightly better than one in 20. And so put all this together, folks. I know it's sobering, but we've got to deal with this. Put it all together. On just four indicators alone, sex, marriage, racism, and money, we realize that evangelical Christians in many ways are hardly distinguishable from the world around them. And some of you are saying, well, Jamie, I know we're distinguishable from those around us. Yeah, you're right. You know how we're distinguishable from those around us? Through this, through all of our talking, right? I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I'm this. Da, da, da. I'm voting this way. Da, da, da. I mean, we're good at talking it up at work. We're good at badgering people, but when it comes to putting our talk or our walk where our talk is, what we're showing is the statistical evidence shows that we're not quite there. In other words, the good that Peter's calling us to here, that heightened level that we just got done talking about, we're not really measuring up. And the question that you and I have to wrestle with, whether this is true for you or just those that you know, is why, right? I mean, what's going on? Why is Christianity in America in trouble on this level? Why is it that on a moral level and a relational level and an intellectual level, we can't seem to get our act together? And you know what most all Christian leaders and pastors eventually land on as an answer is this. And that is that we have been lulled to sleep on what it really means to be an ardent and serious follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, the average follower of Jesus' day, this is sobering, folks, but it's true, doesn't really know him to the degree that their life has been changed by him to the point that they become like him. It's true. I mean, that's really what it's about. That we say we know Jesus, and we go to church, and we do our Bible study thing, but when it comes, as we're going to see in a minute, to him really penetrating the core of our heart, and changing us from the inside out, that we know him to the degree that we're changed by him, to the degree that we become like him, or C.S. Lewis said that we become little Christs, which in a very real way is what we're to become, that ain't happening. It's just not happening to the degree that we're all distinguishable from those around us. 
Or to put it in a different way, there are many conservative, church-going people today who give lip service to the right doctrines at church and Bible study and stuff like that, but their hearts and their actions don't match what they say. They're what we call casual Christians or cultural Christians or theologically carnal Christians. Wanting to have, and I think this is the real root problem, we want to have Jesus as a sideshow reality in our life, tucked away, kind of packaged nice and neat right here, but not necessarily as front and center, Lord and Savior, dying to self, laying it all down at the cross kind of life. That just doesn't feel very American, does it? And so especially in places like Scottsdale or Chagrin Falls where I came from, which tend to be upper middle class environments, just doesn't quite fit the environment we're in. And so we have a choice. Either Jesus Christ is going to reign supreme as Lord and Savior in life, and we're going to pay the price for that, or we're just going to package them off to the side and go to church and attend Bible study and then try to fit in to the rest of our culture and world. And yet the problem with that is that then we become, in many ways, just like them. I want you to look back at our text. I want you to look at verse 15 because this is a key verse out of everything we read earlier. And I want you to look at what it says. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. There's actually a, a, a problem we have with this text here, and that is that when most of us have heard this text before, and a lot of us have if we've been around the church block a few times, you know that you usually hear this passage, isn't this true, in the realm of either apologetics or evangelism, Right? So you go to evangelism training or apologetics, and they say, always be prepared to give a defense, you know, for the hope you have in Christ, and, da, 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 and do so with gentleness respect, and, and that's when that passage is most quoted. The only problem with that is that though that's not wrong, and that certainly in evangelism and apologetics we need to do that, the only problem is, is that the context here has nothing to do with evangelism or apologetics, does it? In other words, the context of us studying this passage today is in light of what? Doing good. And so we need to read this passage in light of this call that Peter gives us to do good. And when you do this, here is what you see. And that is that what verse 15 is doing here is in part describing the kind of follower of Jesus who can do the good that God calls us to. In other words, contained in this, this little passage here is a description of the Christ follower who can deliver on doing good even in the face of persecution the kind of good that God calls us to. And so if you would all relate to the trouble that evangelical Christianity is in in America that we just talked about here, what many statistics are citing, you're going to want to perk up to verse 15 here because I think it contains the clues and the key to what we need to start getting with our, our faith in line with who God really is. Uh, two things you're going to notice in this passage here, two key questions that it screams to you and me, that act as barometers, tests, or measures, each of us individually, with where we might be at with God and whether we can really do the good he's called us to or not. The first question is that in your heart, and I mean in the deepest recesses of your soul, in that place that nobody else sees but where all your motivations stem from, ask yourself, is Christ really Lord and holy? And I mean set apart as the number one ruler of your soul. Is he? The answer to that question will determine how set apart you are in the good God has called you to. Is he Lord? Is he holy in your heart of hearts? Paul the Apostle would say it this way. He would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
In other words, it was all or nothing for Paul, either in or out. What is it for you? Jesus taught us that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so i got to ask you, where is your heart, where is your treasure most focused? And then, as you're mulling that over, think about the second test or question that occurs in verse 15 here. And that is simply this, is that are you anywhere near able to clearly and in a heartfelt way share the reason for the hope that is in you because of Jesus? Listen very closely. Can you do that? And I don't mean make a few trite, hallmark-like comments about God and Jesus, like everybody can do that. And I don't even mean share some canned presentation of the gospel, like the four spiritual laws. You can teach anybody to do that. No, what I think Peter is getting at here is that he's saying, can you look someone in the eye? And with an authenticity like that of Jesus, because they could tell he had been with God, share with those around you the living, eternal hope that wells up within you. In other words, is that hope in you? I mean, you wake up in the morning, and even if your circumstances stink, say to yourself, but man, I got a new lease on life. Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins. I got streams of living water in me, and the hope is welling up. And when I go to work, or when I see my kids, or when I'm seeing my friends or my service providers, something's going to leak out. Some of this hope has got to spill over, and I'm going to give a reason for the hope I have. Can you do that? Because if you can't, guess what? You're not going to be able to do the good that he calls you to. Why? Because something's wrong in here. Do you see the two tests that he's giving us here? This is awesome, folks. I mean, one of these tests here is a, is a test on your relationship with Jesus. Is he Lord? Is Christ center? The other one is a test on how you relate to other people. Does this hope spill out? And the reality is, is that if that's not happening inside of you, then forget about trying to do this good. Because it'll just be work so based, right? It'll just be what Paul said in Galatians 3.3 to the Galatian church. He says, after starting with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by the flesh? Give it up. You can't do that. Just be like the world around you. Favorable tendency or whatever that is. Reality is, is if you want to live the good that God has called you to, it's going to, become, it's going to come because He's Lord. He's holy. He's your life. I love how one of my friends in Cleveland says it. He says, I had three conversions. I accepted him as Savior, and then I accepted him as Lord, and then one day I realized, he's my life. He's my life. I'm nothing without him. I mean, that's the point you have to get to. You have to get to the point that hope is the only thing that you have. I have a good friend in a I'm not going to tell you that story. I'll tell you this one. Uh, this past Wednesday, I, uh, I met with a young man from this church, and, and it gave me great hope and encouragement. Uh, the story initially might not sound like it was great hope and encouragement, but, but, but you'll see it really did. It, it was a young man in our evening service, our 5 o'clock service, that emailed me about six weeks ago and said, I want to get with you. And, and I get a lot of emails like that. And in a church this size, I obviously can't get with everybody that emails me. So we have an entire pastoral staff team that many times helps me. But I try to do my part and meet with people when I can. And uh, this particular email really got my attention because he said this. Um, and, and he said, I've been here six years. I listened to Daryl for four and you for two. And he said, I have never sought out any help from a pastor. I sit in the very last row in the evening service. But I'm in desperate straits in my spiritual life. And I'd like to meet with you. That is not one that you pass off to another pastor. 
And so I said, okay, I'll meet with him. That happened on a Sunday morning. And, and that night, I hadn't even gotten back to him yet, but email, I was walking out of the service and I had to go early. So I slipped out that door and I was running out to my car and I saw a guy getting into his car. He was leaving early too. And I just thought, gosh, he, he looks kind of lost. So I just stopped and I said, hey, I've never seen you before. Like I haven't seen most of you before personally. And I just said, um, my name's Jamie. It was that guy that emailed me. I thought, is that a divine appointment or what? So this last week I got with him. Uh, he's in his young 30s. Successful businessman here in Scottsdale, owns two businesses. He's raised in a Southern Baptist home, and uh, so he's definitely saved. And, uh, and, and really, am I right? Oh, boy. And, um, and, and he really was. Like, we cemented that. If you come to Christ, also, he definitely has. But he said, you know, I've, just, I've slipped over the last 10 years. He said, I'm just, I'm going nowhere spiritually. He said, I come to church, and I sneak out quickly. But he said, it's just, that's it. He said, I don't have quiet times that really mean anything, and, and I'm just like everybody else at my work environment, which is a kind of a tough environment. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm just, there's no real joy. He said, I'm just, I'm just there. And, and, and I said, well, what do you want? That's like a good question to ask. And he said, I want more. I want more in my spiritual life. I know there's more. And I said, there is. And so we started to talk about what more looks like, you know, and, and, and this hope and, and streams of living water and what it really means to be content and peaceful and have the movement of God flowing in your life and all that stuff. And, and, and as we talked about that, I could tell that, that he, was, he was getting really excited about that. And it got kind of to, a, to the headwaters when I, when I said to him, I said, but you know, all of that's going to take an immense amount of work. I mean, that just doesn't come by like walking down the aisle to communion service or something like that. That's just a start. I said, you know, you're going to have to dig in. It's like all in for you or not. You're either going to have to say, I'm going to commit myself to Christ in such a way that he is Lord, he is, he's, he's my first love, he, he's that which I prioritize in my life, or, or just continue to live like you're doing. I, I said, you're either all in or, or you're not, because you're going to have such resistance to living the set-apart life. Trust me, I've been doing it for 25 years, that, that I mean, all of, of hell's going to come against you. Are, are you ready for that? What gave me hope? So he looked at me and said, I'm ready. I'm ready. So you know what I did? I hooked him up with Darian Bennett in our church. Is that not a brilliant thing to do? For those of you going, who's Darian? See me afterward. I'll hook you up with Darian too. And uh, Darian's head of our men's ministry. And let's just say he pulls no punches. He used to be an NFL football player. And his motto on the men's ministry is all in. It's that kind of men's ministry. I think some of you, um, if I don't miss my guess, um, struggle with this as well. You're, 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 what you realize is you struggle doing good, but, but really the root cause is, is where is Christ in your life? I, I've been asking people for years that know me really well, where's your red dot? Look up here on the screen. Give me a click here, guys. When you go to the mall and, uh, and, and you want to know where, I, this is great. This is going to preach. When you go to the mall and, uh, and you want to know where you are, what do you do? You go to that map, right? And, and how do you know where you are? You look for what? The red dot, right? Because the red dot tells you where you are. And years ago, Larry Crabb, one of my friends, said to me, Jamie, where's your red dot? Where are you right now? And I said, what do you mean? He said, are you in Sears? Are you in JCPenney? Are you in Radio Shack? Where are you? Because, or are you smack dab in the center of God's will for you? Are you where he wants you to be? And, and I so latched onto that that over the years I've just said to people, where's your red dot? Where are you today? And, you know, the reality is, as most of us know, is that there are times that we can be off in J.C. Pennyland or Sears Land when God wants us smack dab in the center of his will for us in the center of that mall where that red dot is right there. So as we go to the communion table, the Scriptures tell us we're supposed to examine ourselves. 
And my question to you is, where's your red dot? Where are you here this morning? November 2nd, 2008, Scottsdale, Arizona. I shared with the first service that I'm not sure guilt is always a bad thing, amen? And so as we talk about good, maybe you're feeling some guilt. That's okay. Jesus Christ came to help us deal with guilt. And these communion elements that we're going to hand out in just a minute here are, are his body and blood, that's what they symbolize, that were shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So, so confess and ask for his forgiveness. He will give it. First John 1, 9 tells us that. And as we're doing that too, I'd encourage you during this communion time to not be afraid to do business with God. For some of you, it's time to lay your life down before him. It's time to give your life over to him again. Maybe you were raised Southern Baptist. Maybe you were raised in a Christian tradition where, man, you get it. You get salvation. You get the Bible. But you've, you've erred. You, you've slid over the years. And he might be calling you back today. Why don't you pray with me? Father, as we go to the communion table now, um, I know that you designed this to be a highly reflective, wonderful time where we can examine ourselves and our faith uh, to make any mid-air adjustments that we need to make. And Father, if I don't miss my guess, there are some of us here today, if not many of us, who have been duped in our culture into thinking that good is one thing, and so we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, and then we match ourselves up against your word, and we realize that we fall short. And Lord, in light of that, we know we need forgiveness, and we know you give that to us freely in Christ if we will but receive it. But Lord, we also know that we need repentance. We need to change We need to become the people that you've called us to be. And so, Father, we want to do both of those now. Lord, we know that repentance begins with a broken and contrite heart that just looks to you in prayer and says, Oh, God, I need forgiveness. I'm sorry, and I need to change my life. I lay it down before you. I lay down all my dreams, all my hopes. I lay down who I am. I deny myself. I take up my cross, and I follow Jesus. So Lord, I pray that there might be some who do that here today and that they go into this week with a new resolve and a, and a new passion from which to know you. And Lord, as a fitting close to this prayer, may we know you so that we're changed by you so that we may become like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.